Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm once again joined by Greg Marcus. In the first part of this two-part series, we discussed electrophysiology and the effects of coffee on heart rhythms and the Mary Jane Cannabis and Heart Rhythm Trial. And I, for one, am looking forward to discussing the economics of cardiac devices and AI in healthcare today. So let's dive straight in. So, Greg, a two-part question for you. With America spending nigh on 19% of GDP on healthcare, and the current generation of amazing cardiac devices being rather pricey, how does society find the means to pay? And secondly, prevention of cardiac disease surely becomes even more economically critical as well from, you know, from a humanistic perspective. I'm not sure if you saw this, but our prime minister over here, Rishi Sunak, announced an intention to ban cigarettes effectively. Yeah, this is a hard one and multifactorial and complex. The one thing I would say is that investment in original research is really critical. And this touches on your point about prevention and not only identifying, well, what are the modifiable risk factors that a given individual has control over to, to affect their risk, but also then there's a whole other field which has to do with behavior change. So uh, these are two distinct, although overlapping issues, um, and both can benefit from rigorous research rather than making an assumption based on what may seem intuitive as a way to address something. So there's the step of, well, let's figure out what really is affecting disease. So we just, we had to talk about alcohol, we had to talk about caffeine, uh, you know, tobacco exposure. And then there's, well, how do you actually influence people or help inform people to make their their own best choices. It's not clear that legal bans are the best way to do that. Um, there may be probably more effective ways. You know, we often in the U.S. point to uh, prohibition against alcohol as a absolute failure of a ban to work and, and may have backfired and led to crime and, and other harms that were unintended. Um, whereas we tend to point to the fact that while smoking tobacco certainly remains a problem, uh, we've made a lot of progress in, in reducing uh, smoking more from messaging, the way that we understand it, some um, uh, legal sort of mandated campaigns regarding having to be transparent uh, or, or the companies having to be transparent about the potential harms also in increasing transparency regarding uh, the data that the tobacco companies had available to them, but they were not sharing uh, with the public. But these are all very rich uh, areas for, for research. Um, I don't know that either of those fully address the issue of the rising costs of healthcare, um, which are frustrating, frankly, for many practicing physicians here in the US, where Many feel like we're getting squeezed and essentially being asked to do more work with uh, reimbursements, if anything, going down. There's the whole issue of the middlemen, you know, tend to be the ones who are making the most money and, and the ethics, uh, ethical practices of some of the insurance companies. Uh, you know, it, 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 it is all uh, uh, fairly complex. 
Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, as, as someone who practiced on both sides of the duck pond, I've spent pretty much half my life uh, in the United States. There are so, there's so much, so many tropes that are uh, associated with this that one cannot have, and especially nowadays with the polarization of politics, you can't have a sensible conversation with someone. I mean, I would have American colleagues who would rail against the National Health Service in Britain as being, you know, pretty much a communist ideal. Let me tell you, whilst physicians' incomes have declined here in relative terms over the years, you don't see too many physicians on the breadline, right? Uh, our colleagues tend not to suffer. So I, I just wish we could take the politics out of these conversations and just you know, have proper rational discussions. But then again, I'm an idealist. So let's get back to science. Earlier this year, you presented on genetic risk across ethnic groups at the Heart Rhythm Society's annual scientific sessions in, um, scientific sessions in New Orleans. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so there, there are several interesting findings regarding self-identified race and ancestral uh, origins and atrial fibrillation. So we have shown that those with uh, more European ancestry, for reasons that remain unknown, appear to be at higher risk of atrial fibrillation. So one straightforward way to do that um, is just to show, as we and many others have, that self-identified white individuals actually have a significantly higher risk of developing atrial fibrillation compared to, in the US, African-Americans, Asians, uh, Hispanics. Not only that, we showed that among self-identified African-Americans, those with more genetically determined European ancestry actually had a higher risk of AFib. Now, this is important because in many cases, it's somewhat paradoxical in that in several of these studies, this heightened risk of AFib in the setting of European ancestry occurs despite the people without European ancestry or with, with less European ancestry exhibiting more risk factors for AFib. So on average, these individuals tend to have more hypertension, more heart failure. So it seems backwards. And whenever we have something that's backwards like that, that suggests there might be something to learn uh, about the fundamental cause of atrial fibrillation that we still don't uh, understand. Uh, so it's also important to mention that despite that, that many of these minority groups in the U.S. in particular, such as African-Americans, once diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, experience a higher risk of the adverse outcomes, such as stroke. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. There's this combination of ancestry and, and perhaps, you know, heritable genetics. Uh, and of course, as all of these issues with, uh, as is the case with these issues with race, there's culture, there's, there are social determinants. Um, it's a very complex uh, area uh, that's uh, very important and, and worthy of, of further study. Yeah, that that is fascinating. I was going to, when when you were speaking, I was going to jump in and say um, I thought that African Americans had a higher incidence. So that that's absolutely fascinating. Um, you've already mentioned one aspect of digital health, and you're clearly engaged in ascertaining what role digital health is and will play 
And I noted that you have a current grant applying digital health to the atrial fibrillation of uh, National Cardiovascular Data Registry, uh, enabling long longitudinal follow-up. So can you tell us what aspects of digital health excite you? Someone said to me recently, we should stop calling it digital health. It's health, right? This is part of uh, the lexicon now. And um, I, I guess the second part to that question is AI playing uh, a growing role in your world, like it seems to be in all aspects of healthcare. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier that we actually published the first study to show that a smartwatch and we used Apple watches, this is without any collaboration from Apple in this case, could detect atrial fibrillation. And in that case, we actually used AI or or we specifically trained a machine learning algorithm uh, based on people coming in for cardioversion with atrial fibrillation. We put an Apple watch on them. So we train the algorithm. Here's what atrial fibrillation looks like. We shock those patients as part of their clinical care. Here's what sinus rhythm looks like. Then we validated that in an ambulatory population using our healthy heart study population. So I have been, you know, because we were the first to describe that, then subsequently Apple came up with the same bright idea. Fitbit, uh, you know, recently published a, a paper showing that their devices can detect AFib. I've been somewhat critical uh, just wanting to maintain the scientific lens and to make sure that people are careful as we uh, potentially use these devices or as the as industry potentially uses, uses these devices for screening for atrial fibrillation, which potentially opens up a can of worms in that it may uh, increase the risk for unnecessary anxiety, false positives among people who really don't have atrial fibrillation. Now, the other side of that coin is there's clearly a lot of promise in these devices. And and this is one of the areas where I'm most excited about applications of digital health, such as helping people to change their behavior. What this offers is essentially more of a direct interface with uh, people in the public becoming more aware of their own health in real time which then offers the possibility of more person, you know, the, the, the buzzword is personalized health, health or individualized health. So we conducted a study uh, called iStop AFib where individuals were randomly assigned to their own N of one randomized trial to test their own trigger uh, for atrial fibrillation while using a handheld device to detect their arrhythmia which helped them to understand what their individual uh, risk factor uh, might be or their individual trigger might be. One of the things I always try to point out whenever we talk about digital health, and I completely agree that it is just health and that digital is just a tool. And in fact, I tell uh, investigators uh, or I try to encourage them, you know, don't think of, if, if you don't consider yourself a digital person, don't exclude this as a tool for you to use. This is just research. This is just health. And please use the, please view uh, these digital technologies as tools for you to, to use. The, uh, the final thing I would say is, you know, we're often intrigued by the fancy, fancy gadget or the technology. But ultimately, the value derived from these fancy gadgets relies mostly on the data management and organization, because we can get data overload. It can be very hard to parse out 
uh, the wheat from the chaff, essentially. And this is also where AI and machine learning really comes in, is to help us make the best use of this these dense amounts of data that we're receiving. And in fact, this is part of our clinical routine. For example, one of the most commonly used continuously recording ECG patch already applies AI to identify uh, arrhythmias, uh, and it really probably is the best way to go. And I, I think it's a very efficient use of, uh, of machine learning and, and AI. That's fascinating. Um, so I think it's fair to say that you, you sit at the forefront of advances in your field by working with associations like the AHA, the American Heart uh, Association, as a late-breaking science reviewer for their scientific sessions. Other than the work that you're doing, which innovations on the horizon that you haven't covered uh, are you particularly intrigued by and how could they impact your uh, practice for the better? I remember years ago talking to cardiologists who were involved in the first sort of um, sessions with people saying, well, we've got this this thing that we can can squirt contrast in and we can image your coronary arteries and then we can put a balloon in and stretch them up and maybe even put a tube in and help flow. And there was like, yeah, right. So what what are those sort of over the horizon things that have got your attention? Yes, there are many. One that is quite imminent is a new form of energy used for our common catheter ablation procedures, which have been predominantly done via rate of frequency energy, where we are essentially burn tissue. There's also cryoablation, where we freeze tissue. This new technology is called pulse field ablation, which is already in use uh, more routinely in Europe. It hasn't yet been approved in the U.S., but it's very exciting because it can accomplish uh, what we currently do with radio frequency energy uh, over a matter of many minutes in literally potentially seconds. Plus, there's something about this form of energy that seems almost too good to be true where it damages cardiomyocytes, which is really our target, uh, heart muscle cells that are conducting electricity very selectively and apparently spares surrounding types of tissue. So in many of our procedures, we worry about damaging the esophagus. And it appears this pulse field ablation energy does not harm the esophagus. We worry about damaging nerves, which is the phrenic nerve uh, in particular when we're doing atrial fibrillation ablation, and it seems this spares spares that as well. So uh, this is going to be kind of a, a pretty major, I think, next step, which will also make our procedures much faster and easier, which then potentially opens the floodgates to people that previously may not have been considered uh, for these procedures. There are a lot of other advances looking further down the road. Um, I would say that we were, were, were talking about machine learning AI uh, a moment ago, and the application of that to some of the other uh, advances, such as those in genetics, really would is going to exponentially amplify uh, how fast things move. And I think one really exciting direction there comes back to this notion of personalized or individualized medicine, where right now, for example, I see a patient with a given arrhythmia, let's say atrial fibrillation, we talk about options and we say, well, you could do an ablation, you know, it works most of the time, but 
Doesn't work in everyone. We could try flecainide. Works most of the time, doesn't work in everyone. How do we know in a given patient whether flecainide is going to work or whether ablation is going to work? We try it and we see what happens. In the future, presumably, there's going to be a genetic panel and we say, oh, your atrial fibrillation is especially amenable to X drug or, or Y intervention. I think that's where we're going to move next, which is going to enhance the efficiency, the effectiveness, the safety of many of the therapies we have uh, to offer. Yeah, um, the, it's uh, it's certainly the case, isn't it, with uh, immunotherapy for, for the oncologists. Um, so yeah, that would be wonderful. I've known folks who've had ablations and it just hasn't worked. Um, mm. So that that's exciting. Well, I guess that leaves me on to my next question. Um, there's a lot of negativity, as we hinted at earlier on in this conversation, but I think you share my passion for the profession we've been privileged to serve. Um, it, it's an astonishing profession and so, so rewarding. And I know that you've been very heavily involved in education and as a mentor for, for many folks. What advice would you give to uh, a medical student who's about to graduate and they're thinking of a career in cardiology and specifically your area of cardiology? What would you tell them? Yeah, and I, I would extend this and th I completely agree with everything you said. And I, I should say that mentoring is one of the most gratifying parts of my job or frankly, purely enjoyable parts of my job. And uh, I would extend this. I, I don't know if you have any listeners that have, are, are even considering a career in medicine, for example, or science. And, you know, I, I would frame my advice in, in kind of two parts. One, so Goethe famously said, whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. And I think that that addresses this common issue of feeling daunted or, or kind of an imposter syndrome sort of thing where you're like, well, I, I can't really see myself being a cardiologist, even though I want to do that, but boy, I, I, that's just not me. Or I don't see myself, you know, actually writing, a, being a scientist and publishing papers. What I encourage people to do is to not be uh, discouraged by those understandable, completely natural feelings, and rather to, as I like to say, be governed by your aspirations rather than by your fears. So look at the endpoint. You know, no one was born a physician or a cardiologist or a scientist. We all have to get there over time, and there's no reason, if that's something you want to do, that you can't do it. Which brings me to the other part of this, which is Angela Duckworth's work on grit, showing that successful people ultimately exhibit uh, this, sort of, this sort of stick to or perseverance. And so much success has to do with simply not giving up. So especially in academic medicine, where we face rejection essentially daily. I mean, all, every paper we submit is going to be, well, not every paper, but 90% of papers are going to be rejected probably more than once before they are, they're not going to be accepted ever, pretty much. Uh, initially, they're going to, the best we can hope for is a request for a revision. Grants are even worse. It's really hard to get a grant. But as soon as you shift your mindset to understand, okay, don't take it personally. This is just the, the name of the game. Just have to keep trying. That's what leads to success and ultimately to achieving uh, your, your goals. I agree. Medicine is a fantastic career. There is nothing like helping 
a, a patient, developing those relationships with, with patients. And I do advise uh, people to keep going with their education. Uh, people never regret going to that next level, getting, you know, becoming even more sophisticated, becoming more, frankly, empowered uh, by, by, by education. My field of EP in the U.S. after medical school, we do three years of residency. Uh, I, did four, I did an extra year as a, as a chief resident. You then do these days three years of general cardiology, do two years of EP. But all along, it's not like you're just sitting in a boring classroom. You're doing really exciting, important work. And in the end, for the rest of your life, uh, you get to enjoy that expertise that you've developed. And the more expertise, the more meaningful the impact you can have on, on other people's lives. Absolutely. Well said. Well, we're coming to the end, um, Greg. And finally, a question I like to ask of every guest on the EMJ podcast. If you came across a genie uh, who granted you three wishes for your area of healthcare, what would those wishes be? Yeah, so we used to always joke growing up, like if you ever encounter a genie and they offer you three wishes, your first wish should be a lifetime supply of wishes. Yeah. So I would say, you know, I, I would favor something with multiplier effects. So in my field, um, I'm especially interested in identifying these modifiable, modifiable predictors of arrhythmias. And it is quite amazing if you think about the dearth of rigorously determined uh, evidence, randomized controlled trial evidence about so many things in nutrition that, that we are exposing ourselves to regularly and we don't really know. So one would be to truly understand the modifiable uh, predictors of arrhythmias to inform so everyone really could understand, oh, if I do this, it's gonna, it's gonna affect my, my risk. Uh, secondly, and a much bigger picture, I would ask to instill a real appreciation for the scientific method. Uh, among everyone. And what Steven Pinker would call enlightenment values, meaning promoting and elevating science, reason, uh, free expression, um, and humanism. The, the last part, I think, being super important, which is uh, promoting, elevating, uh, prioritizing human flourishing, no matter who that human may be. And underlying all of that, is this uh, approach of being skeptical without cynical and recognizing that skepticism critique, uh, which, and this comes back to the free expression part, is so critical to revealing truth and to getting better. Uh, I, also, I often like to say, strive to be right, love to be wrong. So it's, it's when people are dogmatic and they're so certain they're right that they're not going to change their mind, that gets you headed in the wrong direction. Absolutely. So keeping this sort of open-mindedness uh, and, and love of science, reason, skepticism, uh, if, if everyone had that attitude, the whole world would, would be so much better and, and so much more healthy, uh, frankly, uh, and it would help with interpretation uh, of the evidence. And finally, I'll say in that line, I would, you know, ask for more investment. I mentioned this before <clears throat> in original research. 
uh, especially, and, and this does uh, kind of crash into some of the political side of things that you mentioned. And again, this is where I would rail against the dogma that I think re- comes from some of the tribalism on either side that is frankly just harmful. And if we could be open-minded, skeptical, critical, but in a civil way, uh, we could really recognize what's best. And I will tell you that government-funded original research is so critical to success. And even the, you know, the, the most hardcore libertarian capitalist should recognize that much of the uh, advances, the wealth, the success of private companies comes from fundamental research that was originally government funded, such as the internet, such as related to anything uh, having to do with genetics. Even statins, for example, we, you know, we often talk about Pfizer, but the basic research that led to understanding uh, the harms of cholesterol, cholesterol synthesis, how statins work, that came from government funding. Now, I do research that's funded by industry sometimes, but the reality is, and this is totally understandable, there's nothing evil or wrong with this. They're motivated by profit. And we need to, to really have a, uh, another way to do research that is rigorous, that's peer-reviewed, as government-funded research uh, usually is. In fact, it's, if anything, it's, it's, it's too competitive. It's, it's so difficult. We spend so much time writing grants just to be rejected that could be spent on uh, actually conducting research. Uh, I am very strongly in favor of of more support uh, in that area. You know, um, there's a, a, a number of like almost memes that one could state. You know, we can disagree, but let's not be disagreeable. Um, and the, and the process of asking questions in science, formulating a hypothesis, testing it, doing you know, working out how to do the experiment, it. It's fantastic mental exercise, and it's amazingly satisfying. And if the answer you get is negative, that's okay, because, you know, it was the Edison thing, wasn't it? You know, Mr. Edison, we've tried a thousand things, and, you know, it hasn't worked. And it's like, no, that's great news. We're now closer to the one that will work. Um, So thank you for that. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. But I want to thank you, Professor Gregory Marcus, for being with us And frankly, all you're doing for the science and clinical practice of medicine, you're a gent. Thank you so much. Uh, It's been uh, enjoyable talking with you. And like I say, if you find yourself in London, let's have a conversation about science. So folks, please subscribe to the EMJ podcast so you never miss an episode and like us on social media, tell your friends, check out the archives and join us next week for another fascinating episode. Until then... I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackyer, and I thank you for listening to the podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.